Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. It is June here, and the tourists are starting to come back here to the National Capital Region. Even some school trips, one of the longtime staples of spring life here in Ottawa is walking past or through Parliament Hill and seeing tons of eighth graders assembled uh, going to parliaments, going to the National War Memorial, going to wherever it is that they're going to. They have started to come back here in the nation's capital. And I wanted to talk about the resumption of tourism, the significance of it, and Fortunately, there is a new book that addresses the history of tourism in one of Canada's most beautiful provinces, that is Prince Edward Island. It's a new book by Alan McEachern and Ed McDonald entitled The Summer Trade, A History of Tourism on Prince Edward Island. The book traces the tourism industry, the growth of that industry from the mid-19th century, really from Confederation through to the pandemic. And as they talk about on the show, the epilogue that they were planning on just got longer and longer as we went through COVID and they addressed some of the issues that came out of the pandemic as the tourism industry, certainly as it was everywhere, was reeling and what that meant for PEI, for the larger economy of the island. So this book does go through obviously a very long period, but it's fascinating to see the transition and the growth of tourism on the island from its early stages in the 19th century and how things like transportation and the ability to get around the island and get to the island change the way in which people approach the tourism industry, both the visitors who are coming and those who are on the island, as well as, of course, the bridge that's built in the late 1990s, the Confederation Bridge that gets you across without having to take a ferry. Things like Anne of Green Gables, of course, is a big tourist draw. But then there's also a lot of tension there culturally within the local communities. How much does tourism impact the local culture? Is there resentment to tourists coming and kind of overtaking some communities across the island? Then there's, of course, the environmental considerations. So you you see at times there is hostility, resistance to tourism. But then when it goes away, as we saw in the spring of 2020, there's this question of, well, how do we get it back? And it's really this back and forth, the the pull and push of tourism and its impact on the island. It's, it's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed the opportunity to go through it. And Alan and Ed were nice enough to join me, of course, remotely. Ed is a professor at UPEI, so he was out in Charlottetown. Alan is a professor at Western. So he was in London, but it was great that we were able to all gather from various parts across the country and across time zones. Really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with Alan McEachern and Ed McDonald. All right. And Alan McEachern and Ed McDonald join me now from their respective locations. I assume guys, uh, Alan, you're in London and Ed, you are in Charlottetown. That's correct. That's right. All right. Hi, well, thank- Hi Sean. <laughs> Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for doing this. As I said in the intro, here to talk about the summer trade, a history of tourism on Prince Edward Island. And let me just start with a question that I've always wanted to know, and it seems to vary island to island. Are you on islands or are you in an island? I wrestle with that as a writer. 
I'm in a province, but I'm on an island. Right. <laughs> so there's no real right answer, is there? <laughs> yeah, I think you're in Australia. Are you on Greenland? Are you? I think it depends <laughs> on the size of the island somewhat. But we did fight about this. And I, we may even fought a little with the press about this, about how what they would decide to call us on or in. And it, it may even have something to do with what sounds right to the ear, depending on whether the word island appears in the name of the island. Oh, yeah. Good. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Right, It'd be we, yeah, weirder to be on, on Australia. Maybe? Yeah. 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 But on Vancouver Island, on Montreal Island, right. you're on Newfoundland. I don't know where you are when you're in Iceland, whether you're on Iceland or in it. Do you have any more questions, John, or are we just going to talk about this for the whole time? That's yeah, fine. Let's talk about, yeah, let's I talk could. about the grammar. The, <laughs> the grammar of the title. That's what we're going to focus on. It's a great it's a first title. It's a metaphysical thing, you know, and, and, and I think that's worth asking when we're talking about an island and tourism on an island. So, yeah, as we say, the, the book is about, of course, tourism uh, on Prince Edward Island, stretching from a confederation, so mid-19th century, up until the uh, 21st century and, and the onset uh, of COVID. And let, let's sort of take this chronologically, because I'm curious about the early stages of tourism on Prince Edward Island in that mid-late 19th century, because you do have certainly a big political things going on in Charlottetown around the era of Confederation. So people are certainly going there. But what did tourism look like at that time? And in particular, who could go to Prince Edward Island? What type of person would venture onto the island? Those are excellent questions. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that you fight with. I mean, I, I try to write about where tourism starts is really difficult. Because as soon as you pick a date, as soon as you pick this guy was the first tourist, then you find someone who came five years earlier. Tourism is sneaky that way. I mean, it kind of, uh, the locals don't see it coming to some extent. And I think that's what happened on Prince Edward Island in the late 19th century. The first people who probably came in any kind of numbers to, to the point that people were starting to accommodate them literally and figuratively, there were the starts of... Uh, seaside resorts in the 1870s. And, you know, there's a good tradition of that kind of creeping up the northern or the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and then coming to Canada. And certainly well off, well off from central Canada, well off from, from the eastern states. I think part of the question about when something like this would actually start has to do with a self-awareness as well. You know, there is a, a progression in some of the literature on tourism about the explorer and then the traveler and then the tourist. And that's from the point of view of the tourist. But from the point of view of, you know, the host, it becomes when do you become aware that you would like to attract these people who come to visit? And for Islanders, that's a gradual sort of dawning. And by the 1870s, there is a, a there are a small number of islanders who are thinking hey this could be something does the charlottetown conference does that actually mark any sort of point in this that it's a large gathering a lot of people from central canada come there's certainly reasons why they choose charlottetown but does that result in anything sort of the press of hey look all these people went to charlottetown is there some offshoot there locally of people realizing hey this is a moment where we can attract people. People like coming here. This is a beautiful place 
to be. Can we lean into that a little bit? I think Ed has something he wants to say. I can really tell he's biting. <laughs> I was just thinking that Charlottetown Accord in 1992 did not give a bump to tourism. <laughs> so the Charlottetown Conference 1864 may have raised the profile of Charlottetown. Uh, and it is true that, you know, when the delegates got a day off, you know, what did they do? They drove to the North Shore. They sightseed, if that's a verb. But Alan, what what are your thoughts on on that? Since we don't have to agree just because we're co-authors. <laughs> we, uh, I mean, we st do start the book with that, Sean, and it's kind of as a joke about them, uh, Fathers of Confederation being early tourists, and they are. But I don't think that there was a kind of groundswell of tourism after that, a ripple effect of other <laughs> of other Central Canadian politicians or or other Central Canadians as uh, as a result of this, it wasn't quite the uh, Canadian invasion, I guess you would say. Right. And we had a lot of visitors here during the conference, but it wasn't because of the conference. It was because there was a circus in town, and it was the first one in twenty one years. Another circus, but um bump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that does, well, that kind of leads to a question of when we're talking about tourism. What about yeah, tourism within PEI, people going from one part of the island to another part of the island. How, how do we sort of assess that? I think oftentimes tourism, and especially in, in the East Coast, where you're, you know, if you're not from here, you're from far away. How, how do we assess the tourism domestically within PEI versus people coming from the mainland? Yeah, I think that's a great question. because, And I think that intramural tourism like that is really sometimes what keeps tourism alive when it's at in its early stages is the fact that people are coming and maybe they're not staying overnight. Maybe they're not, there were no staycations in the 1870s, <laughs> but maybe they're coming for tea and lunch and things like that uh, to some of these resorts. But one of the things I think it's fair to say, Ed, that we, that we found in studying this is that nobody through the entire history of tourism on Prince Edward Island paid any attention to Islanders. Uh, at least until maybe the 21st century, that there was no kind of there was no kind of thoughts about them kind of of staycations being a real kind of a a part of the industry. Uh, they were taken for granted if they were if their existence was even noticed at all. I think partly it's a function of size. So if you live in Oshawa and you go to Ottawa, you're a tourist. Mm -hmm. But if you live in Charlottetown and you go to Surrey uh, and stay overnight we didn't think of you as a tourist. And it's only in the last 10 or 15 years that really the tourism industry and PEI started to include that kind of tourism in their stats. But it's true though as well, Alan, when you were charting some of the earliest ads for establishments on the North Shore, they're advertising to Islanders who might want to come and get away from the city for a, you know, a few days on the coast. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, there's an awareness that Islanders might come to their hotels, mm -hmm. but they really weren't aiming any of their marketing for the most part at Islanders. And we didn't start to count them until really recently. Well, that's interesting to think of it that way. It's a good point to think Oshawa to Ottawa versus within within the island uh, and just sort of the, the size of it all. Uh, the other part that I'm wondering is the seasonality of it. Of course, the book is The Summer Trade. and given that it's an island and it's hard to get to or hard and probably harder to get to in the winter. Is there a change in who might visit somewhere summer to winter? Like, is there more value 
potentially in domestic visitors during the winter, whereas in the summer, you the, the focus really was on bringing people from away to the island. And that therefore, that could account for some of that discrepancy or, or not thinking about the local population as much in those statistics. Sean, have you been here in the winter? <laughs> no, no, I, I've only been in the summer. <laughs> well, when you think of what the attraction is in the winter for tourism, the island struggles to meet that. Mm. Do you ski? We don't have, well, we have a ski hill and it is a hill, not a mountain. Um, our winter weather is not reliable enough for snow sculptures. And um, we've tried, and it's been a mantra for what, Alan, a century maybe, or half a century to expand the shoulders of the season. Tourism has narrow shoulders on Prince Edward Island and to get people to come in the winter. And there have been numerous experiments about trying to launch some kind of event tourism that would get people to come here in the winter. But it has been and remains the summer trade. I had all kinds of great ideas as a title for the book. And Alan said, I think it should be called the summer trade. And I had to go, yep, you're right. <laughs> well, thank you. That's the first and only time he's ever said I was right about anything in this book. Uh, yeah, I mean, for publicity's sake, I'm I'm right. calling him right now. That's right. I think for the sake of um, the tourism industry, I think would love to have June and September, and maybe dribble into October, but they've never really ever thought beyond those months. Like that's about as wide as those shoulders are ever going to get. Yeah. And it's always there's always been a problem for tourism on Prince Edward Island. Spring as a season is notoriously unreliable in terms of weather. Fall is a great season on Prince Edward Island, but the destination has always been a family destination. And what happens in September? Well, the kids go back to school. And so it's only when you know marketing and PEI started to target, you know, dinks, the double income, no kids, mm -hmm. that they see much opportunity to grow the shoulder season, but it still has been a struggle. I mean, I worked in the museum industry and in the tourism industry in the 1980s and 90s, and the government would put in place programs to try to get places to open earlier, but nobody came because nothing was open. Right. Nothing was open because nobody came. And, and so it really has been a struggle, but there's, there's opportunity in the spring and fall, but probably not in January and February. <laughs> and of course, in the early days, you couldn't get here in the winter. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that's part of what I, I wanted to talk about. When you get into the 20th century and transportation changes, both in terms of maybe navigating the water and being able to get to the island, but also things become more reliable in terms of rail service. So maybe people can come from a little further away or from uh, other parts of North America or even potentially Europe uh, as, as the ships uh, become faster and faster. And then, of course, once you get into air travel, uh, things become even more accessible. How do the changes in transportation through the 20th century, in particular, that first half of the 20th century, as we really have the, the advent of, of more reliable ships, trains and then airplanes, how does that change the face of tourism? And is that part of that sneaking into the culture that you, you referenced a little earlier, that it kind of happens around you, almost like a, was the frog in the boiling water a little bit, that you don't quite <laughs> notice it uh, until it's done? 
I think you could talk about all of those. You could talk about um, ships and planes and trains, but to me, the, the you got to talk about automobiles because I think the automobiles from the 19, let's say, really 1920s on, it doesn't only increase the number of people coming to Prince Edward Island, but it basically makes the entire island an attraction. That you can go to every single little pocket. Uh, and of course, this doesn't only apply to Prince Edward Island, it applies to lots of places in Canada and elsewhere as well. But that every place is opened up to tourism in a way that's never that it had never been before. And I think that changes things both for hosts and guests. I think there's another aspect to this as well. The automobile changes the nature of tourism as well. People used to come to a resort and you stayed at that place for weeks, perhaps months. The automobile basically makes tourism a moving sort of thing. Um, people are mobile, but that creates a bottleneck in terms of getting on and off you know, the island. And the story of the century is in large part a story of greater and greater you know, demand and traffic as people travel by automobiles more and more and they can't get across to the island or get off you know, the island, uh, which is bad for tourism. But the other aspect of transportation, I think, is the fact that the passage to an island is a visceral part of being a tourist to an island. How do you know you've come to an island? The crossing over water. And tourism films always like to promote the sea voyage involved in traveling for about an hour on a ferry across a strait. But it's been both a benefit and it's been a problem. Uh, but within the island, once a tourist gets here, as Alan says, the whole island becomes a destination. Uh, we'll jump ahead. I want to get back to the mid-century a little bit. But the, but because we're talking about cars, let's jump ahead to the bridge uh, and the construction of the, the Confederation Bridge and how much that impacts the tourism trade. Uh, I've driven across it once. When I went to the island, I, I took the bridge. And when I got off the island, uh, I took a ferry. I made the mistake of trying to read on the ferry and the, the water was a little rough that day. That was a poor decision <laughs> on my part. But I have I have been across the bridge. But is the bridge essentially a tourism bridge? I, I know that there's a lot of other things that go across the bridge, a lot of trucks, uh, you know, sort of transportation of goods and stuff. But is it essentially a tourism bridge? By the way, this is the anniversary today of the opening, the okay. 25th anniversary, apparently, of the opening of the bridge. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was all over the radio this morning. Probably not national news, but it was local news. Yeah. Alan, what are your thoughts on that? I probably have a, a few thoughts, having been one of the ones who walked across that bridge and spent nine hours in lineups on that day. <laughs> but you sound like you have more of a story. I would say just in terms of the numbers, like it's absolutely clear that tourism numbers shot up. Uh, tourism numbers are, are notoriously difficult, especially, well, for a lot of reasons, but they're no notoriously difficult to figure out exactly how many people and are coming year in, year out, especially when numbers tend to be measured differently uh, over time. But it's crystal clear that the number of visitors to the island uh, skyrocketed after the bridge from probably averaging around six or 700,000 people per year in, in the 1990s, almost immediately to about 1.2, 1.3 million. So an increase of about half a million. And I think that 
the, the sheer number of the rise of tourists generally over the last century is basically one of the key parts to our story. Like a century ago, in 1920, there were maybe 10,000 tourists on PEI, and now there's 1.6 million. So it it is increased so much faster than the population has increased and putting so much more pressure on the population on Prince Edward Island and on on the island itself. Yeah. Now, whether the bridge itself is a tourist attraction is harder to say. Uh, it's a boring thing to drive across, and yet it's a beautiful thing to see from a distance. It's quite impressive. And a lot of people like to drive across the bridge to say that they crossed you know, the bridge. But the ferry also was an attraction if you were able to get on it in a timely way. <laughs> But all that being said, though, does the bridge represent what the book kind of traces, the, the culmination of PI to not a full reliance on, but an, certainly an increased reliance on tourism? Is the bridge a physical manifestation of this transition of PI from a more self-contained cultural and economic environment to one that really does depend on outsiders coming in? That's a great question. I want to hear Ed answer it first. <laughs> that process was already well underway by the time the bridge was constructed. But the debate over the bridge, and as you probably know, there was a debate for five years about whether or not there should be a fixed link and what the impact of the link would be. Part of the argument, part of the gut feeling or resistance to the concept of a fixed link existential worry about what it would do to the islandness of the society and the culture. But that would imply that before the bridge was constructed, that the island was more or less isolated and its culture was somehow insulated from outside influences. And that's true in 1920 and is probably true in 1950, but I don't think it's true by 1990. So is the drawbridge coming down? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, there are lots of arguments for and against the bridge, but the arguments against the bridge came down to two things, environmental impact, but that was expedient because that was the argument most likely to succeed. The opposition to it in many cases was instinctual. Some of it was economic. People were going to lose their jobs. The yeah. people that worked on the ferry were going to lose their jobs. Um, but a lot of it was concern about what it would do to the essential nature of Prince Edward Island. And since no one can define that, it's hard to define the way that it has evolved since the bridge when the bridge isn't the only thing that's changed. It's a variable, but it's only one variable. But I've lived here through that entire time. And the island had completely transformed from when I was a kid, well before the bridge was built. I'm older than Alan, so I can say that with some authority. But it is, it is a watershed moment, John. It is what, yeah. I mean, we chose, in the beginning when we planned the book, we're ending with the fixed link, because it was the recent past. And in the end, we decided to add an epilogue. And the epilogue became longer and longer as it took us longer and longer to get to press because we wanted, Alan thought it was important, and I think he was right, to try to get as close to the present as possible while still being historians. So the bridge, I think you're right, the bridge is important. It's a watershed moment. 
if a bridge can be a watershed, I don't know, but <laughs> but I think it's easy to to overestimate its impact. Sean, you have to ask us about COVID then, because of course yes. the epilogue. There was no way we could publish a book right. in 2022 that would end in let's say 2018, and pretend sure. that COVID wasn't part of this story because <laughs> COVID most certainly is part of this story. Yes, and we will get to COVID. Uh, I okay. do have a couple of questions uh, about that. But I, I want to go back a little bit to what you mentioned, Ed. You said 1920, 1950, the culture of the island maybe is a little isolated. The book, one of the chapters goes through the 60s to the 80s, sort of this optimistic era uh, around the island. But it really does seem like this is a, a turning point for the island uh, in its tourism industry and culturally. So what, what are some of the cues that you guys found in your research that notice not only just the, the tourism, the increased tourism dependence, but those little cultural things that are starting to seep in that maybe are taking away a little bit of that original island culture that uh, becomes so romanticized by tourists. But, but how does that all work together where it starts to be challenged or, or chipped away at through that uh, particular 20-year period in, in the early part of the second half of the 20th century? I have argued elsewhere that the years of the development plan, 1969 to 1984, was the hinge on which the century turned on Prince Edward Island. So the forces of change and modernization, which, I mean, change is always a constant. We like to think that things don't change and don't change, and then all of a sudden things change rapidly. But change accelerated after the Second World War, especially. And the development plan was an attempt to rationalize, modernize the island's economy so that we would cease to be a have-not province. But to do that, the, the plan needed to transform the society and the culture as well. It was you know, a comprehensive plan. And the pieces were meant to be interlocking. And so tourism was a big part of the formula as a new industry that had been growing rapidly. It was a service industry. And a lot of islanders resented the emphasis during the development plan on the tourism industry. And I think they were a little bit worried by all of the bragging from the you know, Minister of Tourism, that the tourism industry would soon be the number one industry on Prince Edward Island. Well, agriculture had always been the number one industry. And the island was predominantly, you know, it was a rural society. Its culture had been shaped by the rural economy. And its tourism marketing built on that idea of a pastoral landscape with a pastoral kind of, kind of underlay of people. And so... You can measure in little increments, changes in the terminology, changes in the marketing and advertising, but the development plant really accelerates and tries to manage that change. Mm -hmm. Some people would like to observe that the, you know, really the history of the island since the war is going to become, you know, vacation land and holiday island from a place that had been known for being a potato island, you know, the spot island, spot islanders, and now we're holiday island. What does that say about us? I think what I would add to that is that I think you see it kind of on both sides. You see in terms of the promotion itself, the promotion is 
um, there's kind of an attempt to modernize tourism promotion to, and to be more hip in ways that are sometimes kind of radically unsuccessful. And the, the one that springs to mind, there's a couple of years in the mid-1970s where the, the annual tourist guide for Pete, put out by the provincial government, had a, had a centerfold. It was one year in particular. I mean, it was right out of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. <laughs> like, it was just kind of terrible, and it didn't really speak to Prince Edward Island at all. You know, it was kind of like an attempt to become kind of hip and with it to the rest of the continent that I just think, I think even at the time, kind of, you know, stank of being inauthentic. And I think that also in this period, you say between the 60s and 80s, one of the themes that we have kind of running throughout this book that we kept finding, and it was kind of a short form that we used when Ed and I, between talking between Ontario and Prince Edward Island, we refer, referred to this thing called hospitality, which was mm -hmm. any times we found evidence of Islanders kind of pushing back against tourism promotion or tourism or sometimes individual tourists. And you, I think that was most evident in the 70s. Um, there was a there was a local uh, what would you call them kind of a local protest group called the Brothers and Sisters of Cornelius Howitt, and and uh, a, a lot of their protests were based on kind of anti-tourism promotion and what the the, the promotion of tourism meant, when the, the degree to which Prince Edward Island, in terms of private enterprise, in terms of the state, was pushing tourism, and they really pushed back against it, and so we we probably found the greatest evidence of hospitality in that period from 1960 to 1980s. And, and as you guys are talking too, I was thinking, you know, I grew up in the 90s. And one of the things that oftentimes you'd come back to school in September, and inevitably, there'd be one or two people who would wear their PEI dirt shirts uh, that they got uh, during a summer vacation. And that strikes me as one of those things too, that both ties in with the idea of PEI as agricultural and, and tying those things together while simultaneously being something that no PEI kid would ever wear to school, I would imagine <laughs> that there's no chance that a local kid would ever wear that shirt, I would think, right? So it almost like those two things fair. tie together. Yeah. That's fair, yeah. Uh, yeah it's we're curious. all wearing maple leaf t-shirts or something like that. <laughs> it's curious because, you know, the dirt shirt was a bit of um, a witticism because if you live on Prince Edward Island, Red Island dirt, it's hard to get out of your clothing, especially white clothing. So the stains tend to stay. So this was right. taking a lemon and turning it into some <laughs> kind of touristic you know, lemonade. Um, but it highlights the fact as well that PEI traditionally has been a family you know, vacation spot. So when I went away to school and started meeting folks uh, from other you know, areas of Canada and North America, if they'd been to Prince Edward Island, it was almost, it was almost always as a child. Oh yeah, my parents took me there when I was nine. It's not some place that you went when you were 22, unless you were with someone who was a fan of Anne of Green Gables and were drawn to that, or unless you had friends, like I had friends who would come and see me on Prince Edward Island. But it, it's always been a family spot, and the dirt shirt played to that. The cows, different kinds of merchandise from cows, but they too cater to shirts for kids. 
I'll say I did go for the first time when I was 29. Uh, it was a family trip, though. We went to play golf. That's why we went. Uh, so that's sort of the, the other. Garden of the golf. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And uh, it was great. My, but one of my favorite things, we went to a course. They just had, at the end of the round, in the clubhouse, a cooler full of mussels. And it was just all you can eat mussels. Just go in, scoop up the mussels and eat them. It was great. Uh, we spent an hour there. Could have spent longer, but my mom is allergic to seafood. So uh, <laughs> she was just sitting there watching us. Uh, By the way, this is a nice advertising shot. This yeah, is a nice advertising right. for the island that you're doing right now. Yeah, island go. blue mussels. Yeah. Golf. Oh, delicious. It was, uh, the weather Perfect. was great. We didn't get any rain for the five days we were there. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, now, Ed, you did mention Anne. I, you, we got, you can't really talk about tourism on PEI without talking about uh, Anne of Green Gables and the significance of that story and, and everything that is built up around it. But let's just start with how do locals feel about Anne and the, the cultural significance of Anne that draws people to the island? Well, I'm going to give Alan first crack at this because Alan has been more a scholar of Anne and, you know, tourism around Anne. And I'm a bit cynical as well about Lucy Maudlin, you know, Montgomery. Yeah, Um, well. Although I'm a great admirer of of her work, actually. So, Alan, what what would you say? Oh, oh, you're going to ask the questions though, Ed. Okay. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I, I guess I would say this. I would say that from the moment Anne of Green Gables was written and published in 1908, it has helped the island tourism industry. And it was the um, when Green Gables and the North Shore became not accidentally part of PEI National Park in 1936. It, it gave Prince Edward Island its first, the Pr- Prince Edward Island tourism industry, its first kind of attraction. Uh, and it has made the North Shore, it has made Cavendish, it has made Green Gables the house, um, the real heart of Prince Edward Island tourism ever since. I think Islanders have been very grateful, actually, for Anne of Green Gables. Uh, A, because of how much money it's brought into the province, but also because it has focused most of the energy and most of the tourists up there in Cavendish. So for (laughs) Islanders themselves, it really gives them the option of you know, I'm going to go up to the North Shore if I want to be with the crowds, or I can just ignore the tourists, stay away from Cavendish. Now, that didn't sound very tourist. The tourism industry might not <laughs> like that. I just said that, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah. I'm going to say a, a couple of more things that I, I think Alan would agree with. One is that the books we love the most, the books that stay in our hearts, are generally books that we read when we were small when and Anna Green Gables and all the other books that were written by Montgomery aren't just liked by people they were loved by people and there's a wholesome quality to those books but it's a little different than the kind of tourism loyalty that you would get if you were a fan of a book that you read as an adult then you have kind of an intellectual interest in coming to see this or that place associated with that book. So it being a children's book makes it especially addictive, if you will. The other thing I wanted to say is that one of the characters in the Montgomery books is the island. Mm -hmm. You know, Montgomery loved the island. 
Her books are full of descriptions of both the landscape of Prince Edward Island and the kind of pastoral island you know, culture that underlays it. And so generally speaking, I think Islanders do appreciate that. Would rather be known for Anne than for being the Kitten Club International kind of headquarters of North America. But from time to time, while grateful that it redirects tourists to the North Shore, I think from time to time, Islanders get a little bit overwhelmed with so much Anne all of the time. And the branding of the island as the land of Anne. Having said that, um, we like to kid about it and occasionally we snipe about it, but there are worse things to be famous for. Does Anne draw a different tourist group than, say, say golf or going around seeing the, the shores or things in Charlottetown? My, my guess, as being someone who doesn't fully know, is that Anne draws a more international crowd whereas some of the other attractions on the island might cater more to a Canadian crowd, but perhaps I'm wrong, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong on that. Well, I think we get tourists from Japan who come to PEI precisely because it's the home of Anne. But let me put it this way. There are lots of places that have pastoral landscape, lots of parts of the world which have warmish seawater, sandy beaches. But if you can combine those with being able to visit the home of a famous author and character, maybe that's a deciding point for families making a decision to come to Prince Edward Island. I won't say all Anne fans are women because they're not. And I won't say that women are necessarily the people who make a decision about where families will go on vacation, although the research tends to say that's true. But that gives us undeniable advantage. It's important to say that Tourists don't have to decide because it's small enough. You can golf one day. If it's raining, you go to Green Gables or, or something like that. And I like what you said earlier, Ed, about um, the connection. The, the, as a literary destination, there are uh, children's books uh, or books you read as a child that are important. There's not a whole lot of really famous literary childhood classics that are already that are also literary destinations. There are some. I'm probably not thinking of them right at the moment. But I mean, you can't go to Hogwarts unless you go to Orlando. You can't go to Middle Earth, but you can go to Green Gables. And for some people, that's pretty attractive. Well, it, it does lead to me wondering about the idea of repeatability then. And like, how, how many re return visitors does a place like New or uh, PI, excuse me, get because you can go say like if you are a fan of Harry Potter and you want to go to Hogwarts, you can go to Universal in Orlando, and they're always changing things up. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, new attractions, new things. They, they're always trying to bring people back. You want those return visitors at a lot of these large tourist places. What does PI do to get return visitors? And again, when we're talking about the the cultural changes to the island. Uh, what impact does that have, the efforts to get people to come back? I don't think this is going to be a full answer, but that's good because there's another author here to answer that <laughs> as well. But I would say that one of the things that tourist promoters are always dealing with are both to keep, and especially maybe a kind of, I mean, 
if you're Las Vegas, you get to, you want to, you need to reinvent yourself every couple of years. Prince Edward Island doesn't want to do that because it's selling instead kind of constancy, right? Hmm. So there's, on the one hand, there's an, there's an attempt to kind of retain that constancy, to know that people are going and to, to allow tourists and would-be tourists to know that when they come back or that they can keep coming back and they'll have kind of the, essentially the same experience. And yet there's also kind of a recognition, as you say, for repeatability, you want to offer some variety. So I think those two things are always at conflict. And frankly, that's why I think that our history of tourism on Prince Edward Island, I think it, I think tourism is a great way to look at the history of a place because you have in a, a tourist destination like Prince Edward Island, you have the, everyone is involved in kind of every year re- um, identifying and redefining themselves and then putting it out there. This is what we're like. This is what PEI is like. And if you trace that over the course of a century, you get to kind of watch the incremental changes, not just to how they're promoting themselves, but to the island itself. So I think I like to think of this history of tourism and PEI is really a history of PEI because mm -hmm. it, it shows the island kind of, um, you know, sweeping back the curtains and saying, this is us, this is, this is what we are circa 1936. This is what we are circa 1954. And so you get to watch the island change. I like what Alan said about the value of being able to offer a consistency experience that is consistently the same over time. So some people actually crave that. And many of them end up coming here and you know renting a place every year or they build a summer home and they become you know, a summer resident. However, it is true that the island has occasionally tried to take the foundation that it has built and add some wrinkles. You came here to golf and particularly beginning in the 90s for about a decade, the government and the you know marketing agencies pushed very hard to make us a destination for golfers. And in more recent times, it's been food you're a foodie, come to Prince Edward Island, food island, and get mussels, get that seafood, get this experience, not just of greasy hamburgers and french fries, but a food experience. Mm -hmm. So those are variations, but they build on an essential foundation that has been constant. And yeah, we have not reinvented ourselves because we haven't had to. All right. Well, let's let's. There's so much more to talk about uh, in this with this book and with tourism on PI. But let's let's wrap with uh, COVID and the COVID experience, and obviously the the challenges presented by it. One of the things that comes up in the book is just the amount of people who work in the tourism industry, either directly or indirectly, uh, supported by tourism. And of course, that essentially all goes away in the spring of 2020, and you lose two seasons of tourism, and. I was wondering as I was going through this part of the book and, and thinking about it, did, does COVID, does the experience with COVID show some sort of a, a vulnerability of relying so much on tourism? And does that in a certain way almost justify the hand wringing or the frustration that some locals have had in PEI over that reliance on tourism and, and the perceived damage that it may have done culturally and then certainly in the past two years economically uh, that that total reliance not total reliance but the increasing reliance on 
tourism? I think it's it's unavoidable. Anything that's a major industry, even if you're not you know, reliant on tourism, if it's not your your only industry, having a major industry go down the way that it did on Prince Edward Island and globally exposes the fact that global tourism is a fragile, it's a monster, but it's a fragile monster. It's made of glass and it relies on certain things over which you have no control as a destination. One of them is safe travel and the other is economics. And so there's a lesson to be drawn from that, that it's unwise to put all of your eggs in one basket. And I don't think the island has always put its eggs in one basket. One of the appeals that we make in the epilogue of the tourism book is that tourism involves making some decisions, not once, but every year, you know, decisions about who you want to be as a destination, how you want to promote yourself as a destination and who you surrender your control to. If you're an island, a small island, you need to keep the levers of agency in your own hands. Then even with a pandemic, at least those things you can control, you will control because there's so many things that you can't. And so I think the COVID epidemic has been, the pandemic has been a reminder that agency is a hugely important element of tourism. I think that's really well said, Ed. The only thing I would really add is that, I mean, not even really add, I think you kind of said this, perhaps I'll try it in a different way, is that, that the Islanders really saw tourism and of course a lot of people saw tourism as natural as that the, it only went in one direction it went up so the question would only be like how are we going to rein it in how are we going to keep it from five percent ten percent gains per year how are we going to keep it how are we going to control it uh and of course they realized after 2020 that they also had to worry about it even existing about whether uh not whether it would go up slowly but whether it would decline precipitously. And of course, there was nothing, nothing that Prince Edward Island or any tourism destination could really do in 2020 to keep that from happening, Uh, which raises some existential questions about the safety of the industry. And sustainability. Sustainability is on everyone's lips. In 2018 and 19, it was at the other end of the spectrum. Over-tourism was on everyone's lips. There were places that were being trampled and degraded and local people were losing, you know, their neighborhoods and control over their neighborhoods. And then in 2020, it was like, oh, my God, the bottom has gone completely out of the industry. Sustainability began to take on a a new meaning. Um, In the 1970s, sustainability was more a question of maintaining the resource that tourists would want to see. So maintaining the environment, maintaining the pastoral landscape, clean up your litter, get rid of the, you know, the barge that sank with all the oil in it, watch the signage. In 2018, it was about how many tourists is too many tourists. In 2022, it's how do we get them back? 
as I said, agency is an important element of that. Feeling like you have some control, because in the tourism industry, there's so much over which you have no control, even the weather. And and certainly with climate change, uh, other threats to the island and its its sustainability in a variety of other ways. There's a lot of factors certainly at play there. And and this book, it, we've only we've been talking for 47 minutes, and we've really only scratched the surface of some of the really key things in this book. So if you are from PEI, I think you'll enjoy this. If you are not from PEI and have been or want to go, uh, you'll enjoy this. If you live somewhere that is a tourist area, I think there's a lot here to unpack uh, within the book. So guys, uh, The Summer Trade, A History of Tourism on Prince Edward Island. Where can people pick it up? And you guys have a an exhibition going on at the Confederation Center of the Arts. So if you are touriziming in PEI this summer, uh, you can check out the exhibit. So what are some of the details uh, for folks out there who want to pick up the book and check out the exhibit? So McGill Queens University Press is the publisher. I happen to have a copy on my desk. Um, it can be ordered through their site, their website. And if they distribute across the country, no doubt you can order it through your local bookstore. It's available fairly widely on Prince Edward Island. The exhibit is really the book in museum exhibit form, I think I, I would say. And uh, we're really excited to be having it at the Confederation Center of the Arts, as you say, from June till October. Uh, and who knows, maybe there'll be even copies of the book there as kind of a supersized catalog for the exhibit, just to, if you happen to attend. We'll link to everything in the show notes, or if you're over on Active History, uh, check the post associated with this episode. Everything will be linked there for the book, the exhibition, if you want to check it out. So again, The Summer Trade, A History of Tourism on Prince Edward Island. Alan McEachern, Ed McDonald, thanks so much for doing this today, guys. Thank, Thank you, you so John. Much. That was fun. So there you have it. My chat with Alan McEachern and Ed McDonald again. The Summer Trade, A History of Tourism on Prince Edward Island from our friends at McGill Queens University Press. Encourage you to check it out. And if you are in Charlottetown, if you are on PI. And you can make your way to Charlottetown at the Confederation Center of the Arts, June 11th through October the 9th, if you want to see the exhibit. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe. Wherever it is you get your podcast, do likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff. Helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. And of course, head on over to activehistory.ca. All of our past episodes are there under the podcast tab. And of course, all the great written material over there on the site. I encourage you to check that out. Lots of fun stuff. Uh, using the search bar on the website. A sneaky fun thing to do. If you're just, you got 20 minutes on your hand and even less, you got 10 minutes on your hand. You're like, hey, I just want to read something interesting. Head over to Active History. Put a term that you're interested in the search bar. Something will probably come up that you will find of interest. Lots of good stuff over there on the site. But of course, if you want to let me know what you would like to hear on this very show, historyslam at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So with that, I will say thanks again for listening. Always appreciate it. We will be back with you again next week with another new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.